0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And nowadays, at least in terms of the internet, we're all pretty used to, maybe even desensitized to the idea of the news hoax those bits of information that are passed off as real news. I mean, we can probably all think of some examples of them. I think, you know, there's always those out there about celebrities who've died when really they haven't. And we do
0: one of our own every year, don't we? We do. We have an annual April Fool's Day article, which is kind of a a staff favorite, I would say, picking out what it's going to be. Somebody gets to write it. And then um, I I sit next to tech stuff, Jonathan Strickland, and he's written a few of them before. And usually April Fool's Day, you can hear him. Trying to judge if the article is passed off as real anywhere, and in which which news sites are running it as a as a real story. But it's always kind of fun just to to have this fake out article. It's usually something pretty outlandish, like animated tattoos or green Air Force One, or or something that is a little bit plausible, but not so much if you if you think about it for a while, especially if it's April Fool's Day.
1: Yeah, so someone might be in danger of falling for one of those, but we're usually not in danger of falling for these Internet hoaxes because they're not coming from so-called legitimate news sources most of the time. A lot of times they're passed along through social media or you get an email that looks like it's made to look like a news article that was forwarded to you or something like that. But what if these are actually Proliferated through what we consider to be legitimate media. Yeah, sources. you read it
0: on a on a newspaper website that you respect and read frequently, or
1: or see it on a news channel. Exactly or hear it on the radio. And that's kind of what happened in the situation we're about to discuss. Though it might not have been intended as such, the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast has been called the greatest hoax in the history of broadcasting. And you could call it the greatest, I guess, because so many people believed it. The broadcast was an original play based on H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, a science fiction novel about a Martian invasion of the Earth. But enough people thought it was real that it caused mass panic. And for that reason, the situation has been a case study for sociologists and psychologists and for media critics who cite it as an example of the power of the media.
0: But what made it so realistic in the first place? And why did so many people believe it, especially since the broadcast was labeled up front as fiction? They weren't trying to fool anybody, or at least it seems that way. So we're going to go into all of that, and we'll also want to take a look at the brains behind the broadcast, in particular Orson Welles. He's probably best known for his work on Citizen Kane, one of the most influential films of all time. But many people say that this radio broadcast is what made Hollywood take note of him in the first place, how he really got his start. So we're going to start with him.
1: George Orson Welles was born May 6, 1915, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, into an upper-middle-class family. He was the second son of Richard Welles, a successful inventor, and Beatrice Welles, who was an accomplished pianist. And Orson is said to have been pretty precocious while he was growing up, and something of a child prodigy, too. He was reading and writing Shakespeare at age three, and at age five, he had walk-on roles at the Chicago Opera.
0: Pretty impressive. But things in his life started to shake up a little bit when he was around six years old. That's when his parents separated. And when he was nine years old, his mother got hepatitis and died. And after that, he traveled the world with his father a couple times. He went to Africa and Europe and Asia. But in 1930, his father passed away too and that left him that left Orson Welles an orphan at age 15 so he studied at the Todd School for Boys in Woodstock, Illinois where he was pretty mediocre student in general even though he showed great interest in studying drama so He graduated at 16. He wanted to go to work in theater, but he couldn't really break in right away. So instead, he studied at the Art Institute in Chicago for a while and even worked as a reporter briefly, which seems to be everybody's job when they...
1: (laughs) A lot of reporter openings back then, even though there aren't now. In 1931, though, he kind of went off on a different path. He went to Ireland, and that fall he found theater work in Dublin with the Gate Theater. He remained there for about a year and then did a tour of Spain and Morocco before finally heading back to Chicago. And when he got back there, he joined Catherine Cornell's company, theater company in 1933 and stayed with her until about 1934. Then he finally made it to New York, which is where he wanted to go, and he made his Broadway debut in 1934 in Romeo and Juliet. But while he was getting these supporting roles on stage, Orson sought out radio work to make ends meet.
0: Yeah, and soon he really made a name for himself doing these dramatic radio performances. And he narrated a new series called The March of Time for two years. And in 1937, he became famous as the voice of a mysterious crime fighter on the radio show, The Shadow. And That's
1: evil. Yes. Who knows what <laughs> evil lurks in the heart of men?
0: Yeah, I mean, he, Orson Welles, he has a great voice. But as a result of the Depression, Welles had also become involved in the Federal Theater Project, which was part of the New Deal. Works Progress Administration. And through that, he started working with a guy named John Houseman. And together, they worked on a couple of avant-garde productions, including a production of Macbeth with an all-African-American cast. And um, their partnership continued and developed into a, a pretty interesting one. Yeah, in
1: 1937, Wells and Houseman formed the Mercury Theater with only $100 in capital to start with. They had a few stage hits, and then in the summer of 1938, They made a deal with CBS to produce weekly radio dramas with the Mercury Theater cast, and they called themselves Mercury Theater on the Air. The program was initially called First Person Singular, but I don't think that stuck.
0: I like Mercury Theater in the air better. For yeah, sure.
1: definitely more dramatic. But they were originally slated to run nine to ten weeks, and the Mercury Theater broadcasts included adaptations of Dracula, A Tale of Two Cities, Around the World in 80 Days, so famous works. And the broadcasts were done in first-person narrative, and they incorporated things like stream of consciousness, diaries, and letters, and they also used sound effects and music in an innovative way.
0: Despite all that innovation, though, the ratings weren't all that great at first, but the show scheduled for October 30th, 1938, the the Halloween show... War of the Worlds, was really about to change the fate of this radio company entirely. So according to many sources, including Richard Cavendish in History Today, Howard Koch, who was the primary writer on the script of of this adaptation of War of the Worlds, privately thought that H.G. Wells' book, which was published back in 1898, was pretty dated and pretty boring, actually. And Orson Wells and Hausman and Koch all wanted to figure out how to spice it up a little bit, make it compelling for the for the radio format, especially,
1: yeah, it's hard to think of a classic work like War of the Worlds needing any work, but apparently it did in this instance. And so, Koch uh, worked on a script for this, and he banged it out in six days. Now, we're going to stop for a second here and tell you a little bit about the story in case you don't know War of the Worlds and you can see then the differences between the script and the original story. Right. So the original story took place in England, but Koch changed the setting to Grover Mills, which is a village in central New Jersey. And this the idea behind this was to bring the spookiness of the Martian invasion closer to home for the American listening audience. He also presented H.G. Wells' story as a series of increasingly alarming news bulletins that start by reporting a meteorite landing in New Jersey. Now, the news bulletins are, is kind of like the key to the whole thing of, it's definitely of the key. why this hoax worked. And a lot of people think that it was Orson's idea. We're not sure about that, but just putting that out there. The meteorite turns out to be this extraterrestrial capsule that opens up to reveal terrifying creatures that burn bystanders to death with heat rays.
0: Yeah, and then there's another... The capsule later reveals a giant machine that starts wreaking havoc in New Jersey and New York. And as the news bulletins report more and more Martian landings all over the country, the situation quickly escalates into total war. Still, though, when the script was finished, I mean, it sounds like a pretty, pretty cool story. And we know the history of it now. But when the script was done, everyone... Involved thought it was still pretty silly and dull. Yeah, according to an article by James
1: Naramore in the journal Humanities, Orson almost withdrew the project to the last minute in favor of an adaptation of Lorna Dune. But they went on a schedule at 8 p.m. on October 30th, and by 8.30, members of the Mercury Theater on the air were surprised to find
0: out that some people actually thought the story was real. So let's look back now and and try to understand the panic that came from this radio drama. So looking back on some of the more extreme reactions to the broadcast that we're going to talk about later, most sources describe it as a, quote, panic or a mass hysteria. So what really happened here? Well, people basically started
1: acting really irrationally. They were trying to flee to their cars. They were going to warn neighbors and people in churches that the world was ending. So traffic was jammed and communication systems were jammed because so many people were trying to call the police and the radio stations to find out what what should we do? Where should we go? And we have a few examples here of things that the New York Times reported the next day, just to kind of give you a play-by-play of things that actually happened, or at least were reported to have happened. For one thing, at least a score of adults required medical treatment for shock and hysteria.
0: Yeah, and in Newark, a single block at Hedden Terrace and Hawthorne Avenue, more than 20 families rushed out of their homes with wet handkerchiefs and towels over their faces to flee from what they thought was a gas raid, and some of them even began moving house Sold furniture. I don't know if they were trying to save it or blockade their yeah. houses or just do something. And just to
1: clarify, people were worried about a gas raid because of the giant machine Sarah mentioned before was supposed to be spraying poison gas in the story on the radio. So they thought that they had to protect themselves. The switchboard of the New York Times was overwhelmed by about 875 calls. A man who called from Dayton, Ohio asked, quote, What time will it be the end of the world?
0: With so many of these calls coming into the newspapers, a lot of papers found it advisable to follow up on them and, and see if there was any truth to reports despite the fantastic content. So finally, the Associated Press decided to send out the following bulletin at 8.48 p.m. And here, here it goes. Note to editors, queries to newspapers from radio listeners throughout the United States tonight regarding reported meteor fall which killed a number of New Jerseyites, are the result of a studio dramatization, the AP.
1: And then the police stations also had to issue statements so that the officers knew what was going on. So here's an example of what the New Jersey State Police put out. They teletyped the following, quote, Note to all receivers, WABC broadcast as drama regarding the section being attacked by residents of Mars, period. Imaginary affair, (laughs) period. End quote.
0: It's it's brief and to the point, and I like the addition of the imaginary fear at the end. But
1: Just to make sure. Just to
0: make sure. Guys, this is not for real. But it's sort of hard to tell exactly how many people were part of this so-called mass panic. The New York Times made reference to thousands of people, and a lot of sources make a reference to the generic millions. And you'll see estimates that about half of the 6 million people who heard the broadcast believed it was true, And about half of those people actually panicked. So that leaves us with approximately 1.2 million people. But not everyone thinks the numbers were really that high.
1: That's true. Some experts believe that these inflated numbers are the result of just a lot of hype. In the Chronicle of Higher Education, Michael Sokolow wrote that, quote, the panic was neither widespread nor as serious as many have believed at the time or since. I mean, nobody died, nobody was killed or committed suicide, so there weren't those results from it, but... He says that our perception could be the result of a couple of things. For one thing, it could be just the media loving and really just making a big deal out of the story. You know, it was a story that a lot of people wanted to read, and they put it out there. Another possibility is that it was just inaccurate reporting on the part of survey respondents. A lot of people were surveyed after the fact to kind of study the situation and find out what really happened. So what Sakala was saying here is that people after the fact, may have claimed that they heard the broadcast when they actually didn't.
0: They might have just seen their neighbor panicking and, and done the same.
1: Yeah, or heard the story and decided to pass it along. Um, maybe they just wanted to feel part of it. Who yeah. knows?
0: Well, so regardless of of how many people did panic, the fact remains that a lot of people really did believe that the War of the Worlds broadcast was real. But why did they believe that? Why would people believe this story about a Martian invasion just because they heard it? on the radio that question is especially pertinent since the program started out with a very clear introduction this is how it this is how it went Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on Air presents The War of the Worlds by H G Wells And to add to that, a couple of times in the middle of the broadcast, they say you're listening to an original dramatization by Mercury Theater on the air of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. So it seems like if you caught one of those parts, it would be pretty clear that it was it was fiction.
1: But there are a few theories as to why people thought that this was real. The first theory posits that people just came into the program too late and didn't hear that opening line. So as we mentioned, ratings for the Mercury Theatre on the air weren't that great at the time. In their time slot, they had to compete with the more popular Chase and Sanborn Hour on NBC. So after that opening line of this broadcast, the broadcast shifts to a weather report that transitions into a music program, a performance of Raymond Rockello and his orchestra. So you're listening to the seemingly normal radio program for a good couple of minutes before the first news interruption about gas eruptions on Mars actually occurs. So the theory is that this news interruption was timed, perhaps purposely timed, perfectly to the commercial break of the Chase and Sanborn hour. So people would have been flipping around during the commercial break, Here's as we often do.
0: Easy Latin music listening and, and decide to stick around for a minute. Exactly.
1: Um, and so when they were switching channels, when they switched to CBS, they would have just heard this.
0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Capacita. Like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello, playing for you in the meridian room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York.
1: So you can see there where where it would have sounded just like a normal interruption.
0: It does sound like a real interruption. And the fact that Mercury Theater on the air was still unsponsored at that point really helped because there weren't any commercials breaking in to remind people that they were actually just watching a show. Also, there are a few other effects that took place during the show that really added to the the reality of all of it. The interviews with real sounding experts like Professor Pearson, a noted astronomer, Lloyd Gray, a natural history museum expert, and also a man on the street, you know, things that real radio news programs were doing at the time. Yeah, and the
1: interviews they sounded really kind of authentic I thought at least listening to this broadcast with the interviewer asking people to speak up and things like that, interrupting each other it sounds very natural, it doesn't sound like something that would have been rehearsed and performed it's not totally perfect I guess and the sound effects of background noise kind of add to that authenticity. So here's an example of an interview that uh, would illustrate this point
0: uh, uh, would you mind standing one side, please? While the moves uh, pushing the crowd back, here's Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm here. He may have some interesting facts to add. All Mr. Right. Wilmot, uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that well, dropped in your backyard? Uh, a step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: this is Mr. Wilmot. <coughs>
0: well, I was listening and, uh, to the radio... Uh, closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Uh, louder, please, closer. Yes. <laughs> I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsy. A professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half chosen and half... Yes, cut. yes, Mr. Wilmot, and uh, then what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio,
1: kind of halfway... Yes, Mr. Wilmot, and then you saw something. Well, not first off.
0: I heard something.
1: And what did you hear?
0: A hissing sound, like this. Uh, kind of like a Fourth of July rocket.
1: Yes, then what?
0: I turned my head out the window and would have sworn I was asleep and dreaming. Yes. I seen a kind of greenish... Streak and then Zingle. Something smacked the ground, knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wilmot?
1: Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of riled. Well, thank you, Mr. Wilmot. Thank you very much. Yeah. You want me to no, tell No, that's quite way? all right. That's plenty. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Mr. Wilmot, owner of the farm Where this thing has fallen.
0: That type of on the spot coverage was also familiar to people. So the broadcast really took advantage of that fact. Since the Hindenburg explosion in 1937, people were used to the on the spot, guy on the street kind of news coverage. And some even say that Orson Welles had the actors listen to those older broadcasts. So they knew exactly what they were trying to replicate. Kind of studied them.
1: And finally, another theory as to why people would have believed this hoax is that listeners were just vulnerable at this time because of what was going on in the world. And I mean, we have kind of talked about and going especially through the New York Times stuff, and it's kind of amusing to see, in some cases at least, the way people reacted or the way the police department reacted. But uh, some of the issues that were going on were pretty serious. I mean, for one thing, a lot of people point to anxiety that may have been latent in the population at this time after years of economic depression. Also, the Second World War was looming in Europe, so that had people on edge. And in fact, the show aired just after the Munich crisis, which was a war scare, which may have caused some people to think that the invasion wasn't actually extraterrestrial. It was just a human war, which actually is scary enough.
0: It is scary. And regardless of exactly why people believed this radio drama, whether they thought it was an enemy invasion or an alien invasion, they did believe it. And it led to some not so great publicity for CBS consequences and initially for Orson Welles too. So he had given the final word in the broadcast basically saying that it was all just a story and CBS's version of a good Halloween joke, essentially. But a lot of people were angry when they realized it was fiction. The FCC issued a statement calling the program, quote, regrettable. Lawsuits were drawn up. Even H.G. Wells threatened to sue for the misuse, the, quote, misuse of his novel. And CBS had to come out and publicly apologize and promise not to create any, quote, simulated news broadcast that could cause harm. So there was a lot of backtracking immediately after after the show came out.
1: There was, and Orson Welles even retreated from public view for a little while. But actually, once the death settled, it became very clear that this broadcast really put him on the map at the young age of 23. The Mercury Theater on the air continued for a while and even got the sponsorship of the Campbell Soup Company. So they went from being this small, unsponsored show to really... Having a new name, family fun kind of. (laughs) Yeah, well, they got moved to a better time slot and they were renamed the Campbell Playhouse. So they had a little backing behind them. Orson Welles also got a contract with RKO Studios and moved to Hollywood to write, produce, direct, and act in Citizen Kane. And, of course, he made a lot of other films, too. So he was really prolific in that respect.
0: Howard Koch also went into film and had a very successful career. He received an Oscar in 1944 for the Casablanca screenplay. And even H.G. Wells finally changed his tune. The controversy spurred renewed interest in his novel. I mean, it's one of those any publicity is good publicity kind of cases, I think, and, and he came to realize that. Yeah, so in retrospect, it
1: seems like a genius move because of the publicity it did get for all these people, and many saw it as such at the time. I, I read one take on it that said... If you weren't fooled by it, you probably thought this whole thing was genius. Especially if you, if you saw your neighbor running out. Right. And if you were if you were the neighbor running out, if you were fooled by it, then you were probably one of the ones who were outraged Pretty and thought angry. it was really, um, really a bad thing to do. And I think that's probably true of most hoaxes.
0: Yeah. If you're in on it, it's cool. If not, I guess your feelings are
1: hurt. Yeah, your feelings may be hurt and you may feel a little bit silly about it. But I don't know, it's a it's an interesting question since we weren't around then. Do you think that you would have fallen
0: for this hoax, Sarah? <laughs> well, hopefully I would have been a careful listener, and I would maybe pick up on some of the clues that it wasn't real. Um, you would so... have been there
1: exactly at 8 p.m. to hear the intro. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I'd have my clock set. I'd be like one of the old-fashioned pictures where the family's sitting in front of the radio waiting for the show to be on. Um, I don't know, though. I, I'm not sure Not sure what I would have done. What about yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure either. I would like to think that I wouldn't be fooled, but... <laughs> You'd be out there with a
0: towel over your head? Maybe.
1: <laughs> Unless... I wouldn't be out there, but I'd definitely be checking things out. I might make a phone call. I can't be sure. It's interesting to wonder about, and I am interested to know what our listeners think as That's well. It's a good if social they, media
0: call, for It sure. is a good one. Um, How but, would you have reacted if you heard the War of the Worlds on yeah. the radio?
1: We may have to put that one out there, but I think before we can find that out um, and before we sign off today, it's worth mentioning that there have been some other more recent War of the Worlds panics, including one in 1949 involving a broadcast that took place on Radio Quito in Ecuador. But this one was actually deadly. Thousands of people rioted in the streets. Some people thought that monsters were actually invading the com- country, and some people thought that it might actually be neighboring Peru invading. So some similar things going on at the time as far as what people thought. Um, after discovering that it was all a hoax, though, mobs attacked and torched the radio station, killing 20 people.
0: And since then, there have been other similar hoaxes around the world, one in Buffalo, New York in 1968, one in Providence, Rhode Island in 1974, and one in northern Portugal in 1988. So these things still happen. I noticed, though, there hasn't been one of these radio hoaxes since the Internet became pretty common. And I wonder now if it would just be put down pretty Pretty quickly, you know, if the flames would be put out before it got to the point of, of people rioting, but I don't know. It could, it could accelerate things though, if you think about it.
1: It's true. I would encourage people to listen to the broadcast. I listened to the whole thing and I think Sarah did too. And, um, it, I listened to it a couple of times actually and I heard different things both times. It was interesting to sit there and imagine what it would be like to, uh, have that as your form of entertainment.
0: Yeah. Either, either enjoying it as fictional entertainment and knowing it was such or, trying to imagine what the people who who thought it was a real news report were actually thinking.
1: Yeah, and you may recognize little bits and pieces of it here. It's been sampled in popular culture. For example, if you if there are any fans of the band Pinback out there, they sampled parts of this for their song Boo on one of their albums. So that's just like a plug for one of my favorite bands there. Oh, yeah. If you know of any other places in popular culture that this has been sampled, please write to us at History Podcast at com. I think that's all we have today, though, on the War of the Worlds broadcast. And now we're going to move on to the listener mail.
0: So some of you may have heard our recent podcast proposal from uh, Jim to Julie on our Victoria and Albert episode and we heard from both of them recently. They are now engaged. So podcast proposal success. We, we were pretty excited our, at our cubes when we got that email, weren't we?
1: Yeah, we were jumping up and down, yeah. literally.
0: And they sent us, we put this on Facebook, of uh, a great save the date that's superhero themed. So congratulations to Jim and Julie, but... Are we really invited? We don't know. I know, we don't know. if <laughs> We don't know if it's just sharing the... Well, we sent the save the date to everybody on our Facebook page now, though, so... I don't think they They probably invited. don't want thousands <laughs> of people at their weddings. <laughs> On that note, we thought we would share this postcard that we received from David from the Alhambra. Um, Katie and I did an episode on it back in the fall. So here's what he wrote. Hi, Dublina and Sarah. After hearing your show, I was inspired to take the 30-hour flight to visit the Alhambra from Australia. The place really is too beautiful for words. I sat in the shadow of the Alcazaba, having a Spanish tortilla sandwich, listening to your Reconquista podcast, just to make sure I didn't miss a thing. I thought life could not get better. Podcast in headphones, tortilla in hand, and gorgeous gardens, as far as you can see, until it did. My partner and I decided to get married then and there. A series of events, your podcasts begin. Adios. So, yay, we're just like the romantic podcast streak going it seems
1: we do we we love those stories and we will admit that it's girly and apologize to anyone who is offended (laughs) by our love of love we just (laughs) did a
0: podcast on like possible invading aliens so i think it balances out it's the best of both worlds (laughs) the war of the world's best of both worlds excellent so congratulations david and your partner and congratulations again to jim and julie you guys look very happy together If you want to email us, it doesn't have to be a grand romantic story.
1: Or an alien story.
0: Yeah, just just whatever. Any suggestions you have on radio dramas, Orson Welles, old Hollywood. I know lots of you have all sorts of Hollywood suggestions. Go ahead and send them to us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook as I already mentioned.
1: And if you would like to learn a little bit more about the possibility of life on Mars, which is something sort of indirectly explored in the topic we talked about today, we have an article by our own Sarah Dowdy on our website called Is There Really Water on Mars? And you can look it up by entering that topic into the search bar on our homepage, which is at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House DefWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House
0: DuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.